0: for scripture reading this morning i'll be reading from hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 39 hebrews 10 19 through 29 therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy place places by the blood of jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is, through, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw nearer with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confessions of hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for us, for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Any one who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the on the evidences evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward for you have a need of of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while. And then and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteousness one, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls.
1: Maybe we'll just leave it there. Open your Bibles again to Hebrews chapter, chapter 12 and we're going to be looking at verses 1-14. through 14. Hebrews 12 starting verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed." Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This morning my prayer for you is simply this, that the word of God would exhort and encourage you in the sovereign goodness of God. Let's pause and ask God to do that for us. God, this morning we want to thank you for your word. It is essential to life. Without it spiritually we die. Without it, we become angry, bitter, deceived, and in the end, utterly, uh, utterly consumed. But with your word, our lives can be transformed and fruitful. As we are nourished by the soul of your word, we grow in discernment, peace, and holiness, and love for our brother. God, this morning, would you help us to receive with meekness your word? And would it save and nourish our souls? Would you help us to be convinced of your goodness? And may we be satisfied with you. We pray this for Christ's glory. Amen. Recently, I've been encouraged and challenged with the life of George Mueller. Mueller was a German pastor who lived almost the entire 19th century, pastored the same church for over 66 years in Bristol, England. A man who began numerous ministries and, of course, is most remembered for his orphan ministry. George never asked directly for money, never went into debt, and he prayed in millions of dollars in in today's currency for the orphans. By the end of his life, his five large orphan houses had cared for over 10,000 orphans. It may surprise you to know, however, that Mueller's primary reason for orphan care was not his love of orphans. Mueller believed that the orphan houses existed to display that God can be trusted and to encourage believers to take God at His word. He wanted believers confident in the sovereign goodness of God. He believed that as believers saw God's providential care for orphans, their faith and their confidence in God would be strengthened. He writes, and I quote him, Three chief reasons for establishing an orphan house are number one, that God may be glorified should He be pleased to furnish me with the means in its being seen that it is not a vain thing to trust Him and that thus the faith of His children may be strengthened. Number two, the spiritual welfare of fatherless and motherless children. And number three, their temporal welfare. End of quote. The order of these three reasons was very intentional with Mueller. Well, God certainly blessed the orphan ministry, and the result was that it did strengthen the faith of Mueller and believers around the world. God providentially, miraculously provided over and over for the orphans. We may think that faith and confidence in the goodness of God is easy when there are miracles, when food and money show up at your doorstep. But what about major personal loss and suffering? How do we handle that? Where I'm most challenged by Mueller's response is at the loss of his wife, Mary. It's what he said and what he believed in the face of this loss and pain that give us the key to his life. Mary and George loved each other deeply and enjoyed each other in the work they shared. And in order to give you some background to the relationship, I again quote Mueller. Were we happy? Verily we were, with every year our happiness increased more and more. I never saw my beloved wife at any time when I met her unexpectedly, unexpectedly anywhere in Bristol without being delighted so to do. I never met her even in the orphan houses without my heart being delighted so to do. Day by day, as we met in our dressing room at the orphan houses to wash our hands before dinner and tea, I was delighted to meet her, and she was equally pleased to see me. Thousands of times I told her, "'My darling, I never saw you at any time "'since you became my wife "'without my being delighted to see you.'" Hopefully we can say that about our spouses. Then came the diagnosis that Mary had rheumatic fever. And he writes, "'My heart was nigh to be broken "'on account of my affection.'" And although he prayed for her to be healed, she passed away. A man who had seen thousands of prayers answered on the behalf of orphans now found his request denied. Or was it? I want you to listen carefully to what he later wrote as to what gave him strength during this time. The last portion of scripture which I read to my my precious wife was this, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. That's Psalm 83.11. Now, if we had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace. We are partakers of grace. And to all such he will give glory also. I I said to myself, with regard to the latter part, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I am a poor, worthless sinner, but I have been saved by the blood of Christ, and I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God." End of quote. This morning I want to ask us the question, are you satisfied with God or are you disappointed with God? Certainly every person alive has faced disappointments in life. Some of you have had and are facing disappointments that are big and monumental. Maybe it's relational disappointments, physical disappointments, disappointments with your church or maybe even your own family. But what is the difference between the person who runs to God in adversity and the person who runs away from God? What is the difference between the person who, has, who in adversity becomes bitter and angry with God and the person who in the face of loss and suffering is able to say, I am satisfied with God, that person whose faith in the sovereign goodness of God endures. The question we want to ask the text this morning is this, what are the characteristics of a faith that endures? This passage that we just read was written to a group of suffering, persecuted believers. These were second generation believers who had already endured quite a bit of suffering, and there was a level of immaturity that we read about in chapter 5. Discouragement was present, temptation abounded, and their faith was at risk. Maybe some of us can, can relate to some of these. As I've studied Hebrews, I think one of the main goals of the writer was to convince these believers that God is good. He wanted to strengthen their faith. He wanted to exhort and encourage them. He wanted to see them grow and mature. He wanted them absolutely convinced in the all-sufficient superior work of Christ and in the love of the Father for His children. So this morning I want us to consider three truths from this text that are essential to a faith that can and will endure. First of all a faith that endures rests in Christ's suffering for us. Secondly, a faith that endures accepts discipline as the providence of God. There is purpose in suffering. And third, a faith that endures fights for peace and holiness. So number one, a faith that endures rests in Christ's suffering for us. In verse two, we find the foundation laid for our faith that is rock solid. This text calls Christ the founder or the originator of our faith and the perfecter or finisher of our faith. The writer of Hebrews spends the majority of the book showing us that Christ and his salvation is superior to the Hebrew system of religion. Christ's work on the cross is foundational to our faith. Our confidence in Christ's atoning work for us, or our lack of confidence, has de- direct implications on how we live. And I want to go back, and, and just read a few of the verses that Logan already read for us in chapter 10. And I want you to notice the contrast between those who have confidence in Christ with those who don't. Starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with the heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near." These these are kind of the outflowing of a confidence in Christ. And then the next several verses here is a lack of confidence. "...For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries." Every decision, every action and move is coming out of our confidence, And the one who has already suffered for us. It speaks of ongoing trust. And this is why I think we are called not only to a single act of trust, but rather a repeated and ongoing looking to Christ. This is where we return and where we rest. Verse 3 and 4 would indicate that without this ongoing consideration of Jesus' suffering for us, we simply grow weary and faint. We lose sight of our leader and we lose sight of the one we are to imitate we begin to lose our way. To lose sight of Christ is to forfeit the source of our confidence. And I'm going to say that again. To lose sight of Christ is to forfeit the source of our confidence. Recently our our family took a a short drive down to St. Mary's Wilderness to take a hike. And for those of you that love the outdoors, I'd highly recommend um, St. Mary's Wilderness. It's a beautiful location. And um, as we're hiking, my youngest son Scott is uh, taking his time and I'm, I'm trying to, to get him to speed up his pace and it, nothing seems to be working. And so as a father, I, I decided to, to, to let him experience a little bit what it might be like to, to, to lose sight of his family. And so I just um, kind, of, kind of let him get further and further behind and uh, eventually we, we go around a turn and I hide behind a tree to see what his reaction is. I'm sure some of, some of you have done this. I'm not the only father that does these things. But um, eventually uh, it was good to see that he picked up his pace. Uh, his, he started crying out for Dad and, and, and started running towards me. And I think it, it's the, the same um, thing happens with our Heavenly Father. Uh, when we begin to lose sight of, of our Father... Uh, we we forfeit the source of our confidence. Having our eyes fixed on Christ is essential and put to the test in times of of adversity. When we as Christians face discipline, if we have cultivated a pattern of looking to Christ, we will be able to make course corrections faster. Uh, In other words, less time wandering in the wilderness. We will be able to mature much faster. We will become uh, better imitators of Christ. One translation states that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. To the Jewish converts the implications would have been clear. Jesus had blazed a trail and He was calling His Jewish brothers and sisters to follow. We find confidence not only in God's sovereign control over suffering, but His willingness to suffer for us. We must rest in Christ's suffering for us before we can ever suffer like Him. And I think it's incredibly important that, that we get this correct. If we, if we attempt to, to navigate suffering and difficult times without having Christ, the, the result is disastrous. Christ made himself vulnerable and subject to suffering. This is the way Christ became like us and redeemed us. But then suffering is also one of the main ways we become like him and experience his redemption. brings us to point number two, a faith that endures accepts discipline as the providence of God. First, let's clarify, what is the difference between the discipline of God and the judgment of God? Certainly, there is a great difference between the two. Discipline speaks of training for good outcomes. In discipline, righteousness is the goal. It has the idea of a father caring for his son and pursuing growth and maturity. Judgment speaks of retribution, penalty, and wrath. It speaks of punishment and condemnation. That's not what this text is talking about here. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Earlier in the book of Hebrews we read chapter 10 verses 12-14, to but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I think scripture is very clear that the children of God never receive the judgment of God. Christ has made a single offering in which all the sins of his children for all time have been paid. So the dividing line between the judgment of God and His discipline hinges on your status with God. If you're not His child, you can be sure that you will receive His judgment, no exceptions. But if you are a child of God, you can take comfort in the fact that that the difficult things that you face are for your discipline. You see, the difference between God's punishment and God's discipline lies not so much in the nature of the pain, but in the purpose of pain. The suffering of a believer and an, and an unbeliever may not be that much different. Both can get cancer, both can lose their jobs, both can have their homes destroyed by a hurricane. In one sense, the unbeliever is being punished by, because of sin, maybe not his sin, but because of sin. And in the other sense, the child of God is being disciplined by his father. So why does God discipline his children? I think Scripture holds out at least three main reasons for God's discipline, and these categories are not original with me. God's discipline is for correction, prevention, and our education. I think this falls in line with the illustration used in the text of a father caring for his son. Sometimes our children need correction. We realize they're taking paths that will cause themselves harm uh, and other people harm, and so we, we discipline them to correct them. Sometimes we, we discipline them for their protection. Think fences and rules. It's, it's, it's there to protect them. And then other times we, we um, cultivate discipline for their education. Um, piano lessons, making them read the Bible are all forms of discipline uh, that to bring about their education. However, I believe the text is not so much explaining God's purpose and discipline as it is calling us to trust in the sovereign goodness of the Father and to realize that we are His sons and daughters. So here's the big question. Will you accept the mystery of God's discipline as God's providential means of training in righteousness and holiness? Or will you kick against God's word and demand that God give you a greater account of Himself The God that we see in the Bible rarely, if ever, fully gives specific explanation for His divine plan. The purposes of God are largely hidden from Job and its readers for the entire book. Other characters such as Abraham, Joseph, and Moses were commended not for their understanding of God's plans, but for their obedience and faith. Verses 10 and 11 tell us that God desires that our lives bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness, And that we would share in his holiness. God wants us to value what he values, to love what he loves, and he wants us to participate in holiness. Discipline is God's process for bringing about holiness in his children. The pain and suffering you are experiencing is not a sign of the hatred of God, but of his love. Number three, a faith that endures fights for peace and holiness. The line that originally caught my attention and got me studying this passage was verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Certainly this holiness is not optional for the Christian and it is imperative that we understand what the call to peace and holiness is. Without it we will not see the Lord. Now you may say that your holiness is found in Christ's righteousness, that you are justified and made holy by Christ's atoning work on the cross. And that positionally you are found righteous in God's eyes, and you would be correct. In fact, Hebrews spends considerable time and text developing this truth. But justification is not what is in mind here. This is not talking about our positional righteousness before God, because the verb pursue means literally to strive. Clearly you don't strive or pursue something that you already have or have already been given. Hebrews strongly exhorts the Christian to strive for a developed, progressive, personal, actual holiness, without which we will not see the Lord. This striving, this work must not rest and ha- must rest and have its roots firmly in the gospel. Flowing out of that gospel comes a faith in the sanctifying work of Christ in our lives. This is a faith that wills and works. With this foundation, words such as strive, strengthen, lift, and make straight are words of action for the Christian. They become a means of sanctifying grace. It is in obedience that our faith is both evidenced and exercised. It's in this exercising of our faith and developing holy habits that we are strengthened and grow. Our beliefs are deepened. Our affections are increased. Our desires are intensified, and this way we share in the holiness of God. Yes, it is works and a means of grace. This is God's goal and discipline, and why we are called to fight for peace and holiness. So, as we conclude, let's go back and once again ask our question what are the characteristics of a faith that endures? First, a faith that endures rests firmly in Christ's suffering for us. This is foundational. Jesus is called the author and perfecter of our faith. We rest here. We are called not only to a singular act of faith, not to a singular look, but rather to be looking to Christ. This is where our confidence and hope abides. I like that word abide. Secondly then, a faith that endures, accepts the discipline of God as his providence. We trust in the sovereign goodness of the Father. We embrace God's discipline. And not because we love suffering, But because we know it is one of the main ways we become like him and share in his redemption. We know there is purpose in suffering and discipline. We know and trust that God is doing something good in and through our suffering, and we long to see it. And then finally, we see that a faith that endures, fights for, and pursues peace and holiness. This is the pursuit of a personal, actual holiness without which we will not see God. This holiness is fueled by the gospel and is not only the evidence of our faith but the means of our sanctifying grace we experience god's ongoing grace in our lives as we exercise our faith in obedience quite possibly you're here today and you find your faith quite shaky maybe you haven't been looking to jesus but rather quite focused on other interests when life gets difficult instead of running to the bible for words of life you run to other things Things that you're good at or things that you enjoy. You're not resting in Christ's goodness, but rather caught up in your own. Maybe you find yourself addicted to a particular sin, something God created or designed has taken the place of God Himself. Because of the shame of your sin, you begin to tell yourself that you're worthless, unlovable, and unforgivable. The shame makes you want to hide from God, from others, and from yourself. Sin is killing your joy. It's likely that some of you here are struggling with anger and bitterness towards God. The circumstances that have been allowed by God or given to you seem quite unfair, not characteristic of a God who loves you. You think God owes you a better explanation of himself. Like the children of Israel, you find yourself longing for Egypt. Things were better there. Maybe you're here today and you're stalled out in your personal holiness because of a lack of effort. You haven't prioritized holy habits of grace. Your Bible is rarely read and studied and your faith and confidence in God is getting weaker. Wherever you find yourself, the gospel holds the answer. The gospel has three tenses. God has saved us from His wrath through the death of His Son. If you have yet to believe, the call to you is very direct. Repent and believe. If you are a believer, know that Not only has the gospel saved you from wrath, the gospel has saved you unto holiness. This is God's goal for your life here and now and and where the text, uh, I think, chapter 12 kind of rests there. Then finally, the good news of the gospel is that he will, in the future, save his children to glory. May God's grace and peace be on us all and may we joyfully and confidently run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I'd like you to turn to number 260 in your midnight hymnal. I'm going to read verses 1, 3, and 5, and then we will sing all five verses. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith, in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Verse 4, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Let's stand and sing this together.